listening to audio from Twin Villages Church in Damariscotta, Maine. If you'd like to check out more resources, please visit twinvillageschurch.org. This morning we're going to be in Lamentations chapter 4, and as you uh, turn there or scroll there, I want to just uh, kind of recap last week very briefly. Um, we were in Lamentations 3, which was the longest uh, chapter in the book of Lamentations. It's the longest lament. Um, but it is also the, the hinge point of the book, and specifically on these middle verses, verses 19 through 33, act as a hinge point. And leading up to um, that hinge, it was a, it's a very um, dark and it's a very um, heavy book, uh, Lamentations 1, Lamentations 2 especially, and even the first part of Lamentations 3 is very dark and very heavy. But at that hinge point, what we, we saw was there were two perspectives on suffering. So leading up to that, um, there was a very negative view, um, specifically specifically in verse 18, where um, Jeremiah writes that, then I thought my future is lost as well as my hope from the Lord. And so there's a, there's a hopelessness that is there. But then as we looked later on in the chapter, specifically verse 58, um, he said this, you championed my cause, Lord, you redeemed my life. And so there's this profound thinking that changed and that thinking happened in that hinge point of Lamentations chapter 3, uh, verses 19 through 33. And we, we, we talked about at the end that there are these four heart-stabilizing truths. Number one, that God's mercy never ends, that he is faithful, and we praise God for his faithfulness. Number two, that, that waiting is good. We learn so much. It can be challenged from us in those seasons of waiting. And waiting can be one of the harder aspects, right, of suffering, Number three was that God's plan wins, that our suffering is part of God's greater plan of redemption. And so if God's greater plan of redemption wins, then our suffering is um, ultimately for, for good, although we may not know why it is specifically. But then number four, we get a glimpse um, into the heart of God. So those four heart-stabilizing truths give us hope in the midst of our suffering. This morning, Lamentations 4, we're going to continue, and we're going to see um, it's still going to be very kind of dark. The, the tone is the same, but we're going, to, we're going to end with this. There's this little sliver of hope that we see in Lamentations 4. But let me read for us Lamentations 4, and then I'll pray, and then we'll spend time in God's Word together. How the gold has become tarnished, and the fine gold become dull. The stones of the temple lie scattered at the head of every street. Zion's precious children, once worth their weight in pure gold, how they have regarded as, now they are regarded as clay jars, the work of a potter's hands. Even jackals offer their breasts to nurse their young, but my dear people have become cruel, like ostriches in the wilderness. The nursing baby's tongue clings to the roof of his mouth from thirst. Infants beg for food, but no one gives them any. Those who used to eat delicacies are destitute in the streets. Those who were reared in purple garments huddle in trash heaps. The punishment of my dear people is greater than that of Sodom, which was overthrown in an instant without a hand laid on it. Her dignitaries were brighter than snow, whiter than milk, their bodies were more ruddy than coral, their appearance like lapis lazuli. Now they appear darker than soot, 
They are not recognized in the streets. Their skin has shriveled on their bones. It has become like dry woods. Those slain by the sword are better off than those who are slain by hunger, who waste away, pierced with pain because the fields lack produce. The hands of compassionate women have cooked their own children. They became their food during the destruction of my dear people. The Lord has exhausted his wrath, poured out his burning anger. He has ignited a fire in Zion, and it has consumed her foundations. The kings of the earth and all the world's inhabitants did not believe that an enemy or adversary could enter Jerusalem's gates. Yet it happens because of the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests who shed the blood of the righteous within her. Blind, they stumbled in the streets, defiled by this blood, so that no one dared to touch their garments. Stay away, unclean, people shouted at them. Away, away, don't touch us. So they wandered aimlessly. It was said among the nations, they can stay here no longer. The Lord himself has scattered them. He no longer watches over them. The priests are not respected. The elders find no favor. All while our eyes are falling, were falling as we looked in vain for help, we watched from our towers for a nation that would not save us. Our steps were closely followed so that we could not walk in our streets. Our end approached. Our time ran out. Our end had come. Those who chased us were swifter than eagles in the sky. They relentlessly pursued us over the mountains and ambushed us in the wilderness. The Lord's anointed, the breath of our life, was captured in their traps. We had said about him, we will live under his protection among the nations. So rejoice and be glad, daughter Edom, you resident of the land of Uz. Yet the cup will pass to you as well. You will get drunk and expose yourself. Daughter Zion, your punishment is complete. He will not lengthen your exile but he will punish your iniquity, daughter Edom, and will expose your sins. Let's pray. Lord, I just thank you for this morning. I thank you for the opportunity that we have to, to gather like this, to meet like this. Lord, I thank you that we have the opportunity to spend time in your word, to learn from you this morning. Lord, it's my prayer that your word would do a work in each and every one of our hearts. Lord, that we would know you better, that we would love you more. Lord, that we would be encouraged Lord, that perhaps we would be convicted. Lord, it's my prayer that we would be faithful to your word, that we would respond to your words. Lord, it's not enough just to be a hearer, we're to be a doer. Lord, so it's my prayer that we would be doers of your words, that we would respond to what you have for us this morning. And I pray this all in your name. Amen. So as a way of introduction, um, no, no, uh, no big news here, right? This, Judah's situation, the way the, where Judah finds themselves at this point is because of their sin. We saw this back in uh, Lamentations chapter 1, um, verse 8, verse 14, and verse 18. And we've learned, if nothing else, that there is always a price for disobedience, and as we think about the city of Jerusalem specifically, there were people in that city that were, were obviously sinful and that were obvious, re, obviously rebellious towards God. But I believe that there were also people in that city that were trying to be faithful to God and were find, trying to honor him and please him with the way that they lived. 
But the reality is with the destruction of Jerusalem, right, both those who were not faithful and those who were seeking to be faithful, both of them experienced the same destruction. Both of them experienced the same calamity, the, the, the death, the destruction, the hunger, the famine, the slavery, the exile. And it's so true today that sometimes we, we suffer because of our own sin, but sometimes we suffer because of the sin of others. And so that's what we want to, I want us to see here this morning, right? There, there is a reality of sin and that we suffer because of sin, but God uses those times, right? He uses that to reorient us back to himself, but I also want to encourage us that during these times of, of sin and suffering, we have to be specific and we have to define the sin. And what I mean by this is that we can't just say it's sin, right? And that's a true statement. The brokenness that we see in this world is the result of sin. But we must be more specific, as a way of illustration, if, you, if you're not feeling well and you go to the doctor and you walk in as you're meeting with the doctor, he says, uh, hey, what's, what's wrong? And you just simply say, I don't feel good. And he may say, okay, well, what do you mean by that? And if you keep on saying like, well, I just don't feel good, right? He, he, can't, he can't help diagnose. He can't help bring a relief and bring healing to you because you're not giving him anything specific to work on, right? And so it's the same way with our sin. We have to be specific with our sin. Yes, it is sin, but, right, we need to dig into our hearts because when we get specific with sin, when we name sin, that's where healing can begin to occur. So we have to be specific. We must examine our thoughts and our actions, our words and our motives so true healing can occur. We need to ask ourselves, how did we get here? How do we arrive at this place? What, what is my role in this? Do I, is there something that I have done that I need to confess and I do ask for forgiveness for? How should I respond in light of what's going on? Right, and doing this work should lead to right, God revealing things in our lives and God um, pushing us to, to confess that sin and ask for forgiveness and to repent and to turn from that sin. We must name it to ourselves, but we also must name it to God. And God uses those times to, to reorient us. So whether we're suffering because of our own sin or whether we're suffering because of the sin of others, God uses all of that to reorient us back to himself. He wastes nothing. So the question is, right, one question is, like, should Judah simply be sorry that they got caught? Right, that's called attrition. That's when you have sorrow over being caught, and the only fear that you have is, like, the punishment or the ramifications for, for being caught. Right, so should they just be sorry that they got caught, or should there be remorse that actually leads to repentance? That's called contrition. So is it attrition or contrition? And obviously the answer is contrition. We, we would want those people, right? We would desire that Judah would be able to, to see and be remorseful for what they've done. They begin to name the sin that they have done and begin to work on repenting and turning and confessing those sins. If they don't approach sin that way, if we don't approach sin that way, we're, we're glossing over the issue, Right? Any relief that we may feel would be temporary because, oh, well, we didn't get caught. 
right? Or we did get caught, but that punishment wasn't that bad, right? There's, there's temporary relief, but we don't confess things, right? Our guilt would be suppressed, and true healing would not occur. But in Lamentations 4, there's a reflection not just on how the city or how the nation suffers, but we also start beginning to see glimpses of the sin that led to that brokenness. Up to this point, it's just been broad brushstrokes, right? They did evil in the sight of the Lord. They were rebellious people. But now we're going to start seeing more specifically what they did. And this is the beginning step in healing and restoration, right? The people had become disoriented with their sin, and God had brought destruction and judgment on them for that sin. But God is going to use those things to reorient them back to himself, They've been disoriented and broken so they can be reoriented and healed. <laughs> so in our text this morning, we're going to walk through in just small little chunks. And I'm going to kind of draw attention to two things, either A, how the people suffered, or B, what the sin was that led to the suffering, or C, a little bit of both. So in verses 1 and 2, we read these words, how the gold has become tarnished, the fine gold became became dull. The stones of the temple lie scattered at the head of every street. Zion's precious children, once worth their weight in pure gold, how they are regarded as clay jars, the work of a potter's hands. The people of Israel, the people of Judah, were God's chosen people. They were, they were gold, if you will. This verse, these verses tell us that they were pure golds. They were set aside, right? That God had made a covenant with his people. They were his chosen people. They were living in Jerusalem, God's city. They had the presence of God in the temple in that city. Gold is not tarnished, but we read in these verses that the gold had become tarnished. Right? What was, was, once was, was thought to be untarnishable has now become tarnishable. They thought they were safe. They thought that they were untouchable. We are God's chosen people. We are golds. We live in his city. We worship in his temple. His presence is with us. We are safe. Nothing can ever possibly happen to us. They were overconfidence. They didn't believe they could be stained, blemished, dishonored, disgraced, harmed. You can't touch me. I, we won't be touched. We're golds. There's pride in there. There's arrogance in there. Galatians 6 verse 1 tells us to keep watch on ourselves lest we too be tempted. Right? They had a correct view of their status with God, but they used that view to excuse away sin. They were prideful and they were arrogant in their view of who they were with God and they got lazy in how they lived. Paul in Philippians chapter 3 verse 12 says, not that I have already had reached the goal or I'm already perfect, but I make every effort to take hold of it because I've been taken hold of by Christ Jesus. And the people of Judah, right, recognize their, their standing with God, that they were God's chosen one. They were like golds, but they didn't live like they were gold. They were prideful and arrogant in their position. They didn't live correctly. Now they weren't gold, shiny gold. They were tarnished gold. And they were actually, they looked like clay pots that would be broken and shattered in the streets. 
verses three through four. Even jackals offer their breasts to nurse their young, but my dear people have become cruel like ostriches in the wilderness. The nursing baby's tongue clings to the roof of his mouth from thirst. Infants beg for food, but no one gives them any. What, what a picture of heartless neglect. The people weren't even caring for the most vulnerable in their society, the children. They showed little care or concern. They showed no care or concern. So why would they be care? Why would they care or concern for one another? If they couldn't care and show concern for the most vulnerable, surely they're not going to show care and concern for one another. They guarded their foods. They would not even care for starving children. Jeremiah says they were like ostriches in the wilderness. An ostrich is known for neglecting their young. The, the, the female ostrich will, will lay the eggs and just cover them up in, in dirt and then walk away and never to return. And so the people were acting like ostriches. They were heartless in their neglect of the children. If they were heartless in the neglect of the children, then they weren't going to be caring for one another either. Verse 5 <laughs> says this, Those who used to eat delicacies are destitute in the streets. Those who were reared in purple garments huddle in trash heaps. Right? There's such a stark contrast between the way things used to be and the way things are now. And we saw that back in uh, Lamentations 1 verse 7 as well, this, this remembering back and these, this pining for the good old days, if you will. But we see this contrast between the, the past provisions and the blessings, right? They had plenty of food. It was good foods. They had good clothing. And now they find themselves destitute, wandering around the streets, searching for food, anything they can find. And now they huddle on trash heaps. They took the material blessings of God for granted. They, 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 they were so cavalier towards the blessings and the gifts of God's. And now they're pining for them. They were a thankless people. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 through 18 say that we are to rejoice always. We're to pray constantly. We're to give thanks in everything. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Right? We are to give thanks to God for everything. <laughs> and as I was thinking through this and this week and studying and, and putting this together and I was actually talking to, to Faith uh, yesterday, and we talked about, like, like, we don't give thanks for everything. Right? We can be very cavalier, and we can just be so complacent with the blessings of God. And so when I encourage you this morning right, to be thinking of those blessings, don't just think of them. Thank God for those blessings. And then we get to verse 6, and verse 6 is a, a, a summary statement, if you will. We'll see a handful of these in our passage this morning, but it says this, that the punishment of my dear people is greater than that of Sodom, which was overthrown in an instant without a hand laid on it. And so Jeremiah draws a distinction, right, to the city of Sodom, and you, we can, you can read about Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis chapter 19, and Sodom and Gomorrah actually becomes kind of a standard for God's judgment. We, we, you read about Sodom and Gomorrah throughout not just the Old Testament, but even in the New Testament. 
But the focus here is on the severity of the punishment that Jerusalem experienced, not on the, the depth or the sin or the rebellion, but the severity of the punishments. And what Jeremiah is saying, right, is that this, this punishment that they're seeing and experiencing is worse than Sodom. Because with Sodom, they were obliterated in a moment, in an instance. But here, God's people are suffering. Here, God's people are hungry. Here, they are they're stiv- starving. They're being driven off uh, to an exile. They're being made slaves. There's no peace. There's no remedy. And this is going on for, for months it's a prolonged siege. And so Sodom's overthrow in an instant is, is better than the prolonged military campaign of the Babylonian nation, the exile, and the poverty, and the hunger that the people are experiencing. But this is talked about um, prior to <laughs> Lamentations 3. And in Isaiah chapter 3, verses 8 through 9, we read these words. The prophet Isaiah says, For Jerusalem has stumbled and Judah has fallen because they have spoken and acted against the Lord, defying his glorious presence. The look on their face testifies against them. And like Sodom, they flaunt their sin. They do not conceal it. Woe to them, for they have brought disaster on themselves. Jeremiah chapter 33, we read these words. Among the prophets of Jerusalem also I saw a horrible thing. This is God's words through the prophet Jeremiah. Among the prophets in Jerusalem I also saw a horrible thing. They commit adultery and walk in lies. They strengthen the hands of evildoers and none turn his head, turn his back on evil. They all are like Sodom to me. Jerusalem's residents are like Gomorrah. And then if we fast forward to the New Testament in Matthew chapter 10 and Luke chapter 10, we read about Jesus sending out the disciples to the, to the lost sheep of Israel. And he, he tells them to, to proclaim that the kingdom of God is near. And he says that if you go into a town and they don't receive you, you're to leave and you're to shake the dust off your feet as you leave. And he follows it up with these words, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. And Jude 7 says, Likewise, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns committed sexual immorality and perversion and serve as an example by undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. And so Jeremiah is saying that in the temporary, right, in what they see in front of them, what they are experiencing is worse than Sodom. It would be better for them to be obliterated than to be experiencing what they're experiencing. But there is hope here, and we'll see this hope play out later on in our text this morning. But when you, you can think temporarily that it's worse, but eternally it is so much better because we know that God is faithful, that God is patient, that he is merciful, and he's not going to back off his covenant that he made with his people. Though they are faithless, he will remain faithful. So in the temporary, it's worse, but eternally there's great hope coming In verses 7 and 8, we read about the dignitaries. 
these people who were set aside and, and dedicated to God, these people who you would have thought would have been exempt or excluded from the pain and the suffering and the destruction that the city and the people were experiencing, but they were not. They suffered like everyone else. So there was no exception. All who, all the nation of Judah, all those people suffered because of their sin. And it was a prolonged suffering. Verse 9 says, Those slain by the sword are better off than those slain by hunger, who waste away, pierced with pain, because the fields lack produce. Again, this idea of quick death is better than prolonged suffering. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 to 13, and then verse 19 says this, Don't be surprised when the fiery ordeal comes among you to test you as if something unusual were happening to you. Rejoice as you share in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may also rejoice with great joy when his glory is revealed. Let those who suffer according to God's will entrust themselves to a faithful creator while doing what is good. One of the painful realities of suffering we talked about last week is the waiting. But so much good can come from the waiting. Although it may feel like in the moment that we better to be dead and die instantly. There was much to be learned. God is reorienting his people back to himself. And so the suffering and the waiting will be used for good because God will take that and reorient his people back to himself. There are many lessons to be learned Relief can come slowly in seasons of suffering, but we are to actively wait. We are to be patient, and we are to seek God's. But in that moment, they're feeling that quick death is better. But again, we're going to see hope in a little bit. Then in verse 10, there's this profound lack of compassion, and the words that we read are just, they're, they're outrageous, Right? It, 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 it's barbaric, and it just speaks to the horror of the situation. The hands of compassionate women have cooked their own children. They became their food during the destruction of my dear people. The most fundamental form of compassion is a mother to her child. The, the care and the compassion that she shows to her children, and that is gone. There's a selfishness. There's this, this mode of, of self-preservation. Instead of providing for her children, she's going to eat her children. That, that, that fundamental idea of, of care and compassion has completely turned itself into selfishness to the highest degree. Instead of protecting and providing, it's destroying her children. Ephesians 4.32 says we're to be kind and compassionate to, to one another. So we begin to see in these verses like the, this idea of we, see, we get the sense of the suffering, but we also see specifically some of the sin that was in the camp or in the nation. And verse 11 tells us that the Lord has exhausted his wrath. He's poured out his burning anger. He has ignited a fire in Zion and has consumed her foundations. In response to the sin and the rebellion of his people, he had to act. In response to their 
pride, in response to their neglect of one another, in response to their thanklessness and their lack of compassion and their, their unwillingness to follow God and his commands of what he has for his people, he had to act. He is holy and just and right, and so he had to judge sin. No one was exempt. It seemed worse than Sodom, and it was prolonged, but God had to because he is holy and just and good. And then in verse 12, we read these words. The kings of the earth and all the world's inhabitants did not believe that an enemy or adversary could enter Jerusalem's gates. So the people themselves thought that they were safe and untouchable. They were, they were gold. They were the gold standard, and surely God would not destroy them. And even the surrounding nations and kings believe that to be impossible. Now, this is an exaggeration, but it's not meant to be taken literally because the city of Jerusalem had been overrun and overtaken before, but not to this degree. The people believed that they and the city were untouchable. It's in an elevated location. It has tall, high walls and very, very thick walls. It made it almost unbeatable. Plus, they had this divine protection from God. So they're God's chosen people living in God's city with his temple and his presence there, and he's protecting all of them. So surely this was not going to happen. And the surrounding nations believed as well. There was this false sense of security. They could do and live however they wanted, and they were going to be okay. So you hear the, the trickling of pride once again. But then in verse 13, we read these words, yet it happens. Although it seemed impossible, although it was believed to be impossible, it happens. The city was under siege. The city was destroyed. Their, their gates were entered. That's a, that's a military reference to conquest. The walls were torn down. The temple was destroyed. Why? Well, Jeremiah tells us because of the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests. What stark words that should jar us and get our attention. Because up until this point, it's been very general, right? It was the sin of the nation. It was the sin of the people. They were rebellious. But now it gets very specific, right? And Jeremiah tells us that it is because of the sin and the iniquity of the leadership, the spiritual leadership, the religious leadership of the people. That is the reason why this happened. Here is the cause. It was the sin and the rebellion of the religious leaders that led to the destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple, the death, the killing, the slavery, the exile. The religious leaders had soft-pedaled, if you will, the proclamation of the whole counsel of God in favor of what the people wanted to hear. The people had itching ears, and the, the religious leaders were more than willing to tickle those itching ears. They gave the people unfounded confidence in these prophecies that they claimed were from God, but they weren't from God's. They didn't instruct the people in the full counsel of God's, in the law. 
They failed to address sin. They failed to, to encourage them and push them towards repentance or to call them to repentance. And, and, and we read this in Jeremiah chapter 5. This is God's word again through his prophet Jeremiah. An appalling, horrible thing has taken place in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely and the priests rule by their own authority. My people love it like this. But what will you do at the end of it? And there's a warning, right? God sees the way that the leaders are acting. They're false prophets and they're ruling by their own authority, but yet the people love it. And so don't miss, right, that yes, leadership has greater accountability. That is true, but there is still individual accountability here and individual responsibility. Yes, they were leading. They were false prophets, right? They weren't, they weren't preaching the whole counsel of God. They were ruling by their own authority, but the people loved it. So yes, the leadership is responsible, but the people are also responsible. And the people didn't want anything to, to do with them. Stay away, unclean, away, away, don't touch us. And the people want nothing to do with the religious leaders. They did not want to, they didn't want to be touched by them. They didn't want to touch them, let alone help them. Remember, they're, they're, they're stumbling around like blind people stumbling through the streets. They're defiled because of the blood that they have shed, because of their sin, the blood of their own people, and that no one wanted to touch them. No one wanted anything to do with them and with their leadership. And they actually wandered around the nations. It was said among the nations, they cannot stay, they can stay here no longer. So they're wandering around, they're outside Jerusalem and they're wandering around seeking a place to, to find refuge and to, to, to plant themselves. And the nations say, we don't want you here. So their own people don't want them and the surrounding nations don't want them. And we read in verse 16, that it was the Lord himself who scattered them and that he no longer watches over them. The priests are not respected. The elders find no favor. And it's not just that God scattered them. He's not protecting them. They are outside the veil of God's protection because of their sin, because of their rebellion, and because of the way that they led God's people, they are outside of his protection. And then we see this empty trust in man, starting in verse 17. Now the people of Jerusalem start speaking, the people of Judah start speaking, and they say, all the while our eyes were falling, were failing, as we look in vain for help. We watch from our towers for a nation that would not save us. So in the midst of this, instead of crying out to God for help, not instead of crying out to God for relief, they're looking and searching for anybody or anyone or any nation that would come to their aid, that would come to their assistance. And there was not one that came. Egypt tried to. Egypt got close, but the Babylonians pushed them back. Lamentations 1 verse 17 has similar language about looking around for someone to have compassion on them and to come to their aid and there was none to be found. 
So they were putting this trust in man, and it was failing them. It was an empty trust. And even when they cried out, the Babylonians were relentless. Our steps were closely followed so that we could not walk in our streets. Our end approached, our time ran out, our end had come. Those who chased us were swifter than eagles in the sky. They relentlessly pursued us over the mountains and ambushed us in the wilderness. The Babylonian empire was relentless. Even if the people cried out, the Babylonians squashed them. Even if they were able to get out of the city, which did happen in 2 Kings chapter 25, we read about the, the city walls coming down, and then in the night, some of the, the fighters for Israel and Judah got out of the city and were, were trying to escape, but they were quickly pursued and overrun by the Babylonian forces. It was hopeless. They had no help. And then in verse 20, the Lord's anointed, the breath of our life was captured in their traps. We had said about him, we will live under his protection among the nations. This is a reference to King Zedekiah and even King Zedekiah, their king, who was the Lord's anointed, had failed them. They had put trust in him, but that trust in him completely collapsed. Even though he was the Lord's anointed and he was the breath of our life, he was the ruler of the nation and the people of God's. Surely he will protect us. But he didn't. He was taken captive. He was actually put in chains. And after he watched his sons be brutally massacred. They gouged out his eyes. The Babylonians gouged out his eyes. He ended up being marched off to Babylon where he died. So there's this, this empty trust in man, in foreign nations, and in, even in their, their own king. Jeremiah chapter 17, verses 5 through the first part of verse 6 says this, Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He's like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any goods come. How often do we find ourselves putting our trust in man? And God says that that is, you are cursed, because if you put your trust in man, you'll stop putting your trust in God's. And I want to pause here and we talk about and talk about the Lord's anointed. And yes, Zedekiah was from the house and lineage of David. So the Davidic covenant was still being in play here, still being enforced. And God's not going to turn his back on his covenants. But Zedekiah failed. But there was somebody who's the Lord's anointed who did not fail. And it's Jesus. He's the Messiah. He's our Redeemer. And he was never captured, right? But he willingly gave up his life. He was the perfect leader. And he can lead us perfectly because he knows us perfectly. He perfectly fulfilled the will of God. He lived the perfect, sinless life. He gave up his life on the cross for our sin. He took the wrath of God on himself for that sin. He secured redemption. He paid the ransom for us so that we could be reconciled back to 
God, and he died, and he was raised three days later, which shows that God accepted his sacrifice. He is the final lamb, the final Passover lamb, the final sacrifice for sin, and in him we have been redeemed. He is the anointed one of God, and in him we have salvation, and in him we have redemption, and it is only in him that we have hope. He is the anointed one. And we will live under his protection for eternity. And then in verses 20 and 21, we're going to see hope here. We're going to see this call to hope. And it's only 12 words long. But I want to read both of these verses. And we need to talk a little bit about Edom. But these verses say, So rejoice and be glad, daughter Edom. You residents of the land of Uz, yet the cup will pass to you as well. You will get drunk and expose yourself. Here's the hope. Daughter Zion, your punishment is complete. He will not lengthen your exile, but he will punish your iniquity, daughter Edom, and he will expose your sin. The Edomites were descendants of Esau, and Esau's brother was Jacob, and Jacob's descendants was the, the nation of Israel. But for centuries, right, there has been tension between Edom, the people of Esau, and Israel, the descendants of Jacob. And it's been bitter. There's been bitter enmity and strife and rivalry between these two nations. And the Edomites did not come to the aid of Israel during the Babylonian siege and during the destruction and invasion of Jerusalem. In fact, they didn't just come to their aid, they actually gloated over the destruction of Jerusalem. That's how bitter they were towards one another. And Israel's outraged over this, and, the, and there's an appeal made to God for the fine in, in, judge, in judgment against Edom. And we read four things that Israel longs for. Number one, they long for a judgment that the cup that they're experiencing is going to pass to Edom, and they too will be judged. They want shame for them. You will get drunk and expose yourself. They want them to feel the weight and the shame of their sin like they're feeling the weight and shame of their sin. They want punishment to come on them. He will punish your iniquity, (coughs) daughter Edom. And he wants them to be exposed for who they are. He will expose your sins. So even in this lament, right, Edom is being warned that judgment is heading their way. They've not gotten away with their collusion with Babylon and with their just gloating over the destruction of God's people in the city of Jerusalem and the nation of Judah. So Edom needs to take heed. As they look and see what happens to Israel, they need to take heed and understand that the same thing is coming their way. And so the people are saying, right, rejoice and be glad, <clears throat> excuse me, rejoice and be glad, daughter Edom, you residents of the land of Oz, yet this cup will pass to you as well. You will get drunk and expose yourself. Yuck it up now. But your day is coming. The people of God have experienced extreme and extensive suffering. They've been isolated, they've been mocked and abandoned by their neighbors. Their sins are being identified, their sin of, of pride and of 
selfishness and of thanklessness and of trusting in man and their failed leadership. These sins are coming to the surface. And those things are going to, those sins are going to begin to help them in their restoration and in their healing. God has isolated them in their sinfulness and has removed any hope of earthly deliverance, both internally or externally, so that they, the people feel that they are hopeless, helpless, and have no possible way to escape. <coughs> the nation's unraveled. There's no apparent remedy. Their sins have disoriented them from God. God's destruction and his discipline is being used to show them that they indeed have no help. In fact, they only have one help, one source of hope, and that is God himself. Daughter Zion, your punishment is complete. He will not lengthen your exile. The only hope or mercy that is offered is God himself and the fact that it is God who is behind the events of that's happening to his people, to the nation, and to the city. And so that their future is in his hands. God has so broken them that their only hope is that God will bring an end to their punishment and that God will restore them and they will be in exile no longer. Israel's at the mercy of God. And that's not a bad place to be even when life is hard, even when you're in the midst of suffering, even when life is disappointing or there's sorrow or there is pain. God will keep his covenant promise to his people. God, even with their brokenness, is going to be faithful to his covenant, and that's all that they can hope in. Great is thy faithfulness. I don't know where you find yourself today. Right? Maybe you can relate to this picture of, of just being absolutely destroyed, and for the, maybe your life feels like it is unraveled and that you're utterly broken before God's. And maybe this is God using these events in this season of your life to orient you to yourself. You need to, to understand the beauty of the gospel, that Jesus is the anointed one. It's only through the blood of Jesus that we can be ransomed back to God, that we can be redeemed God may be stripping away every um, sense of security and help that you think that you have to show you that you do not have anything except for him and him alone and you need him and you need the power of the gospel to save you and to redeem you back. Or maybe you're here this morning and you, you've, you're seeing sin that has gone unconfessed and maybe for the first time. I want to encourage you to, to, to name that sin and to confess that sin and to repent of that sin. God could be using this season in your life to, to reorient you back to him. So God can take pain and suffering and orient you for the first time to him through the power of the gospel and that God can take sin and suffering and pain to reorient you back to himself through the power of the gospel. It is a gospel issue. We never, ever graduate from the gospel. 
brokenness that leads to confession and repentance of sin is not wasted brokenness. Pain that leads you to trust in God alone is not pointless pain. The key is whether or not we embrace the brokenness that God brings us because it brings us something better. It brings us God himself and it reorients us back to him. And that kind of perspective changes everything. Brokenness leads to mercy because brokenness leads to God. It reorients us or it orients us to God's. And for the believer, that is the greatest treasure of all. Lord, I just thank you for this time this morning. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity to be in your words. Lord, I thank you that you are a faithful God's. Lord, I'm thankful that even in the midst of brokenness, you are there. Lord, that we can trust that you are there, that you are working all things for good for those who are called according to your purpose, that your plan wins. Lord, this doesn't mean that the pain and the suffering is easy. It doesn't mean that we find ourselves waiting. Lord, but may we trust that you are good. Lord, may we trust that you do these things and you allow these things in our lives because you are orienting ourselves or reorienting ourselves back to you, that you indeed are our only hope. You are our only source of help. Lord, we we praise you and we thank you for your goodness. We praise you and we thank you for sending your son to this earth to be the anointed one, to pay the ransom, for our sins so that we can be reconciled back to you. There's nothing on this earth that can do that for us. It's only your son. Lord, so we praise you for the power of the gospel. Lord, may we never lose sight of the truth of the gospel and the power of the gospel. May we never believe that we've graduated from it. We need it each and every day in our lives. And I pray this all in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio from Twin Villages Church in Damariscotta, Maine. Feel free to share this message with others, and for more information about Twin Villages Church, visit twinvillageschurch.org. Soli Deo Gloria. Thank you.